0: David Vardabedia and thanks so much for tuning in to Get Real Sobriety. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Get Real Sobriety. This is David Vardabedia and Tasha Martin. Hi. This is our third episode um, going through the book and um, excited about that. I had a good week. We sold 15 books to a rehab. So exciting. Woo-hoo. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in the Black Plague or the pandemic plague or whatever <laughs> we're calling it, COVID 19. So, um,
1: yeah, right? People have a lot more time to read. Yeah.
0: And chapter two, yes. uh, that's kind of where we're going to start today. And we're recording from the beautiful downtown, world famous Alana Club <laughs> in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, Viva la fiesta. It's, you know, I mean, there's no one fiesting. Yeah, there's
1: no actual fiesta, fiesta, just the spirit of fiesta.
0: Fiesta. Maybe I'll put a a Spanish dress on and go out there. Yes. That would be cool, right? Yeah,
1: do a little flamenco dancing for us.
0: And um, so we won't go into the history of the Spaniards and (laughs) (laughs) the Native Americans.
1: Yeah, imperialist, colonialist (laughs) history. Not today.
0: Different (laughs) (laughs) podcast. So, uh, yeah, Um, you've got the... Laura, I guess is what they call it. Right? Okay. You've got the mic.
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. Mm. Um, all right. Well, uh, chapter two is called A Common History. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a lot of history with AA. And I think, you know, this chapter, you kind of you start with the history and then, um, you know, you move into the disease model, as they call right. it nowadays. And um, we move right through to spirituality. And then you end, or at least where where we're gonna, I'm gonna try and wrap this all up today, um, is on the the Trinity, yeah, the power of the Trinity. So, um, which is the AA Trinity? I feel like we should clarify.
0: But it's interesting when I one of the first drafts, you know, I talked about Colin Broderick that wrote, you know, that wrote um, *Orangutan*, great book. He. He read the first draft, and I was heavy heavier than it, it is in this um, edition on the disease model, the history, and he's like, you know, it's cool to kind of shorten that stuff up, mm-hmm. because I really went into detail on that, and... So that's just kind of a side note or a sidebar of that. But I thought people would be interested of in where the origins of the 12 Steps come from, you know? Yeah. And I, there's a lot more other people that are way more qualified to talk about it than I am. But I know in general kind of like what happened and, you know, what people... Um, you know, where when people started treating alcoholism as a disease or a problem or whatever, you know, and it actually started you know, pre-civil war in, um, in the, uh, 1800s with the Washingtonians yeah. and they were really successful, you know, and their whole thing was, you know, one person helping another person. It didn't have to be an alcoholic, but getting them, getting them the vision of God or whatever it was. And,
1: uh, and service.
0: Yeah. And service work. Right. Yeah. That, that was really important. And they fell apart because of um, it got politicized with the war and you know slavery and all of that and and you know and I could be totally wrong but this is just some of the things that I've read about why the Washingtonians dissolved and, and they were no longer um, and so you know and that went into the early you know 20th century into the 1900s. And then it goes, and in, in a lot of stuff in the big book will tell you the history, like the history of the town's hospital um, and uh, Dr. Silkworks, where he worked, and, you know, pre-Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. Then it kind of evolved into uh, the Oxford group, which was this, and it's not uh, the 16th century Judeo-Christian <laughs> Oxford group. They yes. were named that. I, I, um it, it was a religious organization, but they came up, uh, you know, with a certain, the the certain like six absolutes or the six steps, mm-hmm. right? And, and and what people don't realize, like when you're in, an, you know, a twelve step meeting, AA meeting or NA meeting, you're reading a big book or whatever, or CA meeting, whatever it is, Al-Anon, is that. Most of the stuff you're reading is pre AA because there was no AA. Yeah. You know, all those guys, Bill Wilson, Ebby Thatcher, Roland Hazard, all the you know, big hitters in, in AA, they were in the Oxford group. Yeah. And that was, you know, think about it too, in, in the late 20s, uh, 1930s, and what was happening in the 1930s to 1940 in the United States? Do we know? The Great
1: Depression. Depression,
0: right? So you think about it. I mean, it was fucked. I mean, more fucked than it is right now during the Black Plague. <laughs> yeah, COVID-19, right. We think we're
1: fucked. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it was gnarly, and until the you know World War II started and kind of saved the day and created jobs or whatever income or yeah. uh, revenue. But and I could be totally off on that too. So the point being is that the ox, you know, the big book wasn't published until 1939.
1: Yeah. So, you
0: know, 81 years here that, that, you know, 81 years old,
1: that's crazy. I know
0: it's so crazy, but a lot that, you know, when Bill Wilson and uh, you know, Dr. Bob that famous church scene where he called a church and then got Dr. Bob, um, that's all pre-AA. That, that yeah. was Oxford Group stuff. And, you know, the Oxford Group was a Christian organization.
1: Oh, yeah, through you know? and through.
0: And, and so, you know, they talk about the first hundred people that were in AA all came through that. So the story about Bill Wilson's best friend, Ebby Thatcher, that came to his house and Bill was drunk and Ebby, you know he was the one that said, choose a God of your own understanding. Mm-hmm. you know So that all the, again, all those that was the Oxford group, you know, someone went into court for Ebby. He had like 60 days at that point.
1: yeah, and
0: he went to court for Ebby and then Ebby got sober and helped Bill. And then Bill went into the town's hospital. this was several times. it's like, that would be like going to Five East, you yeah. know, here. And Five East here is our detox in Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital. So Dr. Silkworth was a big, you know, part of the, you know, AA history. Because oh,
1: yeah, he kind of legitimizes the whole thing.
0: Exactly. I mean, one part of the history is that when you know, after Bill Wilson sobered up and they, you know, they worked through their six steps. They weren't 12 steps at that point. They were coming back to help other alcoholics in the town's hospital. And for a doctor, because doctors, and again, I I don't want to offend any doctors, but they have this, you know, they have what they call a God complex or a, you know, mm-hmm. kind of an arrogance to them, which yeah, fuck. They went through a lot of school, and it's not all doctors, and and most doctors want to help people, but there's that. The the reason I'm making this point is because they said, with all their education, we're we're not effective with alcoholics. Yeah. So we are welcoming these guys, these 12-step guys coming in, our 6-step guys. Yeah. At so. The time. Um, That's kind of how it happened, you know, and then the Oxford group got disenfranchised with the alcoholics that were there or Bill and their group in New York kind of got disenfranchised and they started working on expanding when Bill wrote the book and was published in 39. But through that time, like let's call it 1936 through 1939, those three or four years, you know that they were working on it. But the six steps, and it's in my book on page 42, it was step one was complete deflation, what we now think of hitting, body, hitting bottom, you know, or admitting we're powerless over alcohol. Yeah. Okay? And then step two was dependence and guidance from a higher power.
1: So it's really two and three
0: right exactly yeah. so you know what step two you know came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity it's, and then step three making the decision to turn your will in your life over to that right yeah and then they have step three is the moral inventory which would be four yeah. for us right and moral you know the definition of moral is just truth you know i think right
1: Yeah, I feel like we looked that up at one point. Uh Yeah, it has other connotations. Right,
0: but truth we can go with. And so, and then confessions, uh, that was like...
1: Step five, really. Step five. Step five, six, seven. And they
0: blend it into, they don't really talk about character defects here. Yeah. But it's just part of that. And then five is restitution, which would be eight and nine. Yeah, the amends And then six would be continuing to work with other alcoholics. And so... Bill Wilson and other people, and I don't know them, but there's other historians that could, like I said, speak to it a little better, and I kind of gave a general overview yeah. of this, is he expounded them, or expanded them, not expounded, but expanded them into 12 steps. Yes. So, again, we we look at the moral inventory, which would be five, and then he does six and seven, Character defects and shortcomings. And shortcomings eight and nine.
1: Making the list and then and making then the amends. Making the
0: amends. Yeah. And then it just says in step six, continue to work with other alcoholics. So they made it well, continue to take personal inventory, sought through prayer and meditation, and then the step twelve was having the spiritual awakening, which Carry we like message. to say is the yeah. change of perception and all that. So, you know, pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I love the history of this, you know, because you and I wouldn't be sitting here.
1: Oh, yeah. If
0: it wasn't for those guys, you know, that did that. And again, you know, I've had this uh, discussion and not really a debate about why God was used so much in the big book, but you have to think of that time. That is the predominant... You know, religion of the United States at that time. And it was a hundred white men. They say yes. one woman or whatever, but yeah. it's a hundred kind of not, you know, well to do, you know, upper middle class or whatever white men. Yeah. That started it. You know, I mean, yeah, there's you have no to look denying at it. That. You
1: have to look at it as a text that is written in its time.
0: Exactly. You
1: know, um, I know I, I actually, my mom, r- relatively, recently asked to read the big book, which I thought was, I mean, I kind of, you know, she's a reader. So, um,
0: your mom being a professor.
1: I, yeah, exactly. She likes to read here and there, you know? (laughs) Uh, but I think she'd maybe gotten through like, you know, more about alcoholism. Um, and calls me and she goes, this book is really sexist. And I was like, yeah, I know. I forget sometimes because I'm so used to reading it, like just how it comes off like that. Um, And because personally, I had most of the I think almost all of the book studies I go to, with the exception that David, the one that David and I go to. um, They're all women's meetings. So I'm like really used to reading but like parts of the book that are really problematic through for like a, for a reader today. Like, I mean, just the perspective throughout the book.
0: Well, yeah, it's like God, as you understand him, you know, or two wives. Oh, my I mean, God. You know, what the fuck? We I mean, just
1: read that right. in my women's book study. Yes. And I'm
0: telling you when I because I was I don't want to say I had the gift of desperation, which is a good thing. But it didn't bother me as much as it bothers me now. Yeah, you know, and I bristle at some of the stuff. And, and we talked about that whole thing about how I felt like even writing my book that it was a little blasphemous, you know, and people would say that, you know, fuck you, bro. Like the, you know, it helped you. What do you mean? You know, the 12 steps without God. It's like, whatever. It's like, this is to help people get through it. Right. Yes. But, and I told you my mom who was in the program and I would ask her to, I'm like, this book is sexist. Right. And and uh, I, and it's really, like, Christian-heavy, <laughs> yeah. right? And I said, didn't it ever bother you to, like, you know, you being... And she was, you know, a, a, was up for women's rights and really yeah. believed in all that. And um, she told me, she goes, you know, at that point when I was getting sober, it was like vacuuming the house when it was burning down. And I think I said yeah. that before, but...
1: No, but it's so true. I mean, I feel like I've had kind of a, like a, a full emotional range of experiences with it. Like on the one hand, when I was like new, new and my like first go around recovery, I wasn't really on board. I wasn't truly desperate enough yet. I think right. you know, I still had a few, unfortunately, more relapses in me. I used the fact that the literature didn't speak to me, that I was, you know, righteously offended by it. And um all that i used it as a reason to to not do anything yeah whereas like by the time i got sober this time yeah i was so beaten down that i just didn't care anymore i was like whatever yeah. i i'm a smart enough person to be able to read between the lines and it's you know just because like my primary dr- drug of choice is heroin doesn't mean that I don't... This won't apply
0: to it, right. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I mean, how often have we heard that? You know, oh, th- we talked about this last time, that, oh, alcohol yeah. isn't my problem. It's like, well, yeah. I don't know about that. And, um, but actually, uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, women's rights and all yeah. that, and I was. this is just like a fun factoid I was sharing with David right before we started recording, that when I was in grad school... Um, I w- had to take this history class. This is long before I was ever involved in recovery, uh, but I we were learning about women's suffrage, and uh, they talked about how the wives of the some of these alcoholic men who were affiliated with the Oxford Group, and I'm sure early AAers, um, that they went and argued for the right for women to vote.
0: That was one of the motivations. Yes. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, so for crazy. the right to vote because they were saying that oh our men. Are incapacitated by alcohol, and you you get this when you read Two Wives in yeah. in in the Big Book as well. Uh, that they say, you know, we're the heads of the household. Our these men are unable in body and mind right. to be able to vote, and they don't have the
0: capacity. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we're the ones running everything. We deserve a say. That's
0: so, and that was even before, you know. I mean, that's just history. I right? mean,
1: that's but, like women are people who are should be allowed to vote. They should be counted as a person. Like, we that's the kind of conversations we're talking about here. Like. Um, and so I think too, it's another example of how even though the big book and a lot of AA literature is like written from that white male middle class kind of perspective, yeah. that it is even though that was the primary language of the times, um, there is a, there is like a radical voice to it. Yeah, if you absolutely. are, if you can see that, if you, but you have to. And it's we'll talk. And we,
0: we'll talk about that. Like. Like in step one, you know, that where, you know, uh, Dr. Silkworth knew what the problem was, but he didn't know what the solution was, you know? And then Carl Jung knew what the solution was. He didn't really know about like the chemical imbalance of the body and all of that, you know? And so, yeah, well, there's more to that. But to kind of wrap up on the origins of the 12 steps you know, during that period of time when they were writing the big books and he expanded it from six to 12. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we, we've even had this discussion we've had it with Daryl and all this. It's like, if you look at like, you know, six and seven, that could really be one step, right? You know, eight and nine could be one step.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's
0: two different actions to take, but you could like, them together. So I heard like, Theories on why Bill Wilson did twelve steps It was like the twelve disciples.
1: Mm-hmm. All the symbolism uh, in right? It. Mm-hmm. And
0: so, who fucking knows, right? I don't know. <laughs> who cares, really? But it it's really interesting to know that this the twelve steps have revolutionized the you know disease of alcoholism. You the know, world, really. You it's know? like I mean, and how many has it helped? So so many people. And you get all these statistics that like, you know, 95% of the people that walk into Alcoholics Anonymous fail, you know? Yeah. You know, or 50% of all divorces fail, you know? So it's a pessimistic point of view. And so but you can turn around, well, let's look at the, you know, success of all of this. So. Yeah. And that kind of segues into the, you know, on page 43, we talk about the disease model. You yeah. know. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think I I really like w- talking about the disease model right. in ter- because I think especially for people who are trying to get sober today, right now, um, it helps to have some science to back up right. what we're talking about. Because it seems like, like I think so many of our very human experiences, they're hard to... Put into words, we often think, oh, I'm the only one this is happening to, or this is, or I mean, the common kind of thing I hear, oh, it's a matter of willpower. Right. When no, it's like, no, you have an, a chemical imbalance. Things are not as they should be. Right. Drugs and alcohol do very specific things to your brain chemistry that then alters the environment.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, and it, you know, that's kind of how I started out. Like, in, you know, and science has come a long way since even any of this writing. you know mm-hmm. in 1956, the American Medical Association recognized it as a disease. Now, alcoholism and disease, what does that mean? you know in the big book they talk about and what you were just suggesting is that there's different chemistry in people that are alcoholics and addicts like you and I yeah. than there are normal temperate drinkers, you know or normal people that, and I know these people, Yeah. you know? And again, it doesn't come down to uh, demonizing alcohol or drugs. It becomes the, our relationship with yeah. drugs and alcohol. You know, it's, it's just like anything else. What's the relationship? Sometimes it's toxic, sometimes it's not. But when they talk in, in the big book, they talked about, Silkworth said, we have an allergy of the body. You know, mm-hmm. and so if you look at what's the definition of an allergy, it's an adverse reaction to something. You know, whether you be um, allergic to strawberries or allergic to bee stings, you know, you and I could get stung by a bee, which I have several times, yeah, and same. it actually hurts, but it doesn't swell my throat up. You know, it doesn't like yeah. start this weird like you know. Uh, chemical reaction in my body where I need to be taking the emergency room. I'm like, fuck that hurt. And I get a big welt on my back or whatever, you know, and, uh, and I move on, you know, I used to get stung by bees all the time. I don't know Is this kind of a sidebar, but (laughs) when I lived out in Gaviota at the Hollister ranch, I mean, I remember they had like, uh, bee boxes for honey for the trees. And they're the essential part of the world. And that's another podcast. So save the bees. (laughs) yeah, Yeah. Save the bees. Right. Um, but I remember the first time I was taking, they, it was outdoor showers, and I was taking a shower, and I got stung by a bee on the back. And I was like, ow, oh, fuck, that hurt really hard, <laughs> you know, really bad. And then I was like, oh, that's kind of punk rock. That's uh, cool. I got stung by a bee. And then the second time, I'm like, ow, oh, that really hurt more. And then I'm like, this is no fun anymore. But, yeah,
1: that's, this sucks.
0: Uh, but I didn't have to get rushed to the hospital, yes. you know. Um, it's the same thing of some people have, you know, there's a lot of kids with different allergies now, you know, like, uh, oh, gluten, know, like intolerance gluten intolerant, and like dairy intolerant. Ice, yeah. Right? But, you know, like uh, strawberries or whatever. So yeah. an adverse reaction. So that's kind of weird when you're talking about alcohol, because what's the adverse reaction that happens to us? Well, it creates this phenomenon of craving, yes. right? And and what does that mean? Oh well, I just want to keep drinking or using where someone normally wouldn't do that. Yeah. You know. And I kind of gave the example of like normal people have a working thermostat, you know, yeah. set the house to sixty-eight or seventy-two. When the thermostat gets to that, it shuts off and goes, "Look, I've had enough." You know.
1: Yeah, we're And good I've here. known
0: friends of mine that are normal drinkers, you know, or non-alcoholic. I would say that like, hey, you know, a ha- couple of glasses of wine with dinner or a couple of glasses of wine watching a show or whatever, yeah. reading a book at night, and then that's it. They're like, oh, fuck, I'm so tired. You know, I'm like, wow. Yeah,
1: wow. Like, I don't that's get That's amazing. That, right?
0: It is amazing. And, but that's normal. That's relationship stuff. And so they don't have this chemical imbalance. Now, the tricky part of alcoholism and the disease is that people do these experiments, like, well, fuck, I don't know, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And they go out and have a glass of wine, and like, well, nothing happened. Yep. You know, and it talks about in the literature, it says, over any period of time, it gets worse, never better. Something, I'm paraphrasing, right? Yeah, no, that sounds about so, right. Something mm-hmm. like that, yeah. right? And so over any considerable period of time, it'll get worse. So if you do that, you know, I don't know. I mean, if I took a drink today, I, I'm, sh- I'm almost sure that, you know, with 31 years and not even that there's time, because one, alcohol wasn't... I'm an alcoholic, yes, and alcohol will bring back my drug of choice, but it's not like, hey, if I went out and shot some heroin right now, yes, that would be a different deal. But if I went out and had a glass of wine, down on State Street or something, I don't think I would go out and start robbing liquor stores again right away. Yeah. But it's a subtle foe. So the point I'm trying to make is, over any considerable time, and I've had many examples of friends or people I've known over the years where they they said, you know, fuck, I don't know, maybe I got sober too young, I'm making too much of this. They, mm-hmm. they experiment with this, you know? I have a friend in New York right now that this guy I know, had five years of sobriety, said, I got sober really young, and, you know, and started having a a glass of wine. Yeah. And it's working right now. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, maybe they weren't alcoholic, you know, but, you know, time will tell. Now, I've had another friend who I know is an alcoholic, and he's like, you know, I started drinking again, and like, so let's call it in November. He started drinking again, oh, yeah. and nothing happened until about March, and then a month pill, powder, booze, yep. ending up locked up in the county jail, and then realizing, okay, yes. Yeah. S- so that's what I'm saying. So, you know, g- let's go back to the allergy. Like we have this chemical imbalance. Yes. Then it creates this phenomenon of craving, right? But it's subtle. It's like, it doesn't yeah. do that all the time. That's what's fucked up about this disease, is it's like, it, it fucks with your head, you know? It's exactly. Like, but, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm 100% sure that I have this chemical imbalance and call me an alcoholic or an addict or a chemical imbalance. Um, So I know I've tried it so many times, tried like just using on the weekend or, you know, take (laughs) a trip, don't take a trip, you know, read inspirational books, you know.
1: Right. That whole list. Crystals,
0: you know, smudge myself. (laughs) That'll do
1: it. Yeah. Get some essential oils going. And it
0: just nothing worked. So I'm 100 percent sure. Um, So that kind of just talks into, uh, you know, that we, you know, goes into what is what's happening with the chemistry in our brain. You know, and I, I was during when I was going to school at City College and working at, um, and studying psychology and working um, at Kleinbottle, which was a youth, I was a drug and alcohol counselor there. Yeah. So they sent me for um, this training with this guy named Dr. Alex Stalkup, and he works at a treatment center now. He was one of the first people that brought Suboxone. Uh, bufrenorphanine, I think is the uh, inky name or chemical name for it. Yeah. And he did this whole thing on brain chemistry, you know? And I remember taking uh, biological, biolog- bi- biology, uh, psychology or something, mm-hmm. that was the name of the class, and they talked about it there. But Stalkup really, like, broke it down for addicts, you know? Yeah. He talked about, okay, so, when you drink or use on a daily basis, you're depleting dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, right? Yes. And so, he, what his theory is, and I, you know, theory or not, science behind it, is he goes, once you're taking in something that's mimicking dopamine and endorphins, your brain stops producing those. Yeah. It so, says we have enough. Right. So, it's it's kind of like I like to give the example of the steroid. Um, yeah. You know, your, steroids are basically testosterone. Yes. Right? And and you know and and so when bodybuilders do that, it helps their you know, it helps them build muscle or whatever. I don't. I'm not a bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah, I, I
1: mean, know. Yeah. Like
0: doctors will give uh, steroids to to to. Well,
1: it's an anti-inflammatory? Right? No, but
0: accelerate the healing. Yes. Right. Okay. So. Stallcup would say about the disease concept is that, or I mean, about the brain chemistry. So is that you're, anyone, he, this is what he said. He goes, look at addiction and alcoholism, you know, one and the same thing is a brain disease. Yes. Because, yeah. and this is where now go back to um, alcohol, you know, like Dr. Silkworth calling it an allergy. He coined that phrase, you know, I don't know why he did that, but he's just saying that there's an adverse reaction for yeah. these people if you look up the definition of allergy. So Dr. Alex Stalkov talks about it. He said, and I remember sitting in the lecture and he's saying, <coughs> excuse me, if any one person uses drugs or alcohol on a daily basis for a period of six months or longer, they've altered the chemistry of their brain. Yes. And I'm like, well, fuck anyone. I mean, you don't have to have the chemical imbalance. Anyone could do that. And he's like, yeah, anyone. And, I, and I, so at the break, I'm like, and he knew I was in recovery. And I was only in recovery, like, maybe three or four years. Then. Yeah. And, he, and I said, yeah, but uh, Dr. Stalkup, why, you know, it, the whole thing about non-alcoholic alcoholic I go, so a non-alcoholic could do that. And he goes, but most people that don't have the the chemical imbalance or the allergy that creates the phenomenon of crazy will not use drugs and alcohol on a daily basis for six months or longer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> we forget that part yeah, sometimes. Yeah,
0: right. The, the normal person's not going to do that. And so it was really interesting to kind of put some science behind it, you know, and some, you know, psychiatry behind, you know, like what's going on with our brain. So this is the biggest part that I really liked is he said that, so your brain's not producing dopamine, your brain's not producing serotonin, your brain's not producing endorphins, right? So your body and what they call a tolerance, Mm -hmm. use, use heroin or meth or whatever, alcohol, you build up a tolerance, they call it homeostasis, like, like a no, Yeah, like the you know, equilibrium
1: of e- your yeah, body. Yeah, right? So,
0: yeah. you know, or a tolerance. And then, what did he say? He goes, he put this, you know, like, uh, scale up, and he said, okay, the middle's normal, and normal's different for different people. Of course. You know? Um, and he goes, look at here, going to the right of uh, euphoria,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So, you know, he goes, you're a little kid. You get a star on your shirt for you know doing good in school or something, getting a good grade. Your body releases this dopamine. You have this excited you know response, and that's the brain releasing this dopamine.
1: Yes yeah, it's rewarding. You know, you. you
0: win a soccer game or you do well in a spelling bee or whatever the fuck it is, right? Yeah. So your brain starts releasing these stuff. Then you know the other thing is that you know you get hurt. Your body, the nor- the natural. Um, opiate for the body is the, uh, endorphins. Yeah. You know, or runner's hides. People run, run, run. Your body's like saying stop. And then it goes into like, you know, a shock or releasing endorphins. Um, so he said, that's, what's normal with the body and it can regulate that stuff. Now let's say, Oh, I'm in seventh grade and I smoke some weed or I drink some wine. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't need to get a star anymore. I yeah. don't need to. I don't
1: need to do any of those. Anything. Things. I can
0: just smoke weed, right? Or I drop acid, or whatever it is. So. Yeah. He says, as you're going for this euphoric state, you know, then cocaine, meth comes in, heroin yeah. comes in, you know. Just
1: keep ramping mollies it up. Molly's come
0: in, you know. Uh, Ecstasy, whatever it is, and then your body starts producing. It's not like the levels of getting a good grade or oh, yeah, winning a spelling bee or falling in love or whatever, all the natural things.
1: Yeah, no, not it's not (laughs) right. I mean, it's an extreme example. So
0: he's saying at the end of that scale is euphoria, the middle is normal, then the other side of the scale is dysphoria. Yes. So this is the part that really where I connected into the big book when they, thought, when they talked about an alcoholic when they're drinking or when they're not drinking so is like restless, h- yes. irritable, and discontent. I'm like, fucking bingo. It clicks yeah. right with what he's saying about brain chemistry because you're in a dysphoric state. Yeah. Restless, irritable, and discontent. And he goes, it's normal because you stop taking the drugs even if it's at a homeostasis like a normal level like where you built this tolerance when you stop drinking you go into a dysphoric state because the brain is not producing dopamine endorphin serotonin i'm like fucking brilliant this is this is science this isn't like woo woo hold a crystal smudge myself this is total science of what's going on with your brain so the restless irritable discontent is a dysphoric state good news how do you get back will you stay sober yes. you're doing activities you know and that's what i asked him i said can the brain re can it regulate you know and and start reproducing naturally
1: yeah
0: dopamine endorphins and dope and serotonin and uh, endorphins and he said absolutely he goes the only where only Times that he's seen where it's more difficult, and he's talking about heroin addicts, meth addicts, you know, pot addicts, alcoholics, yeah, people that are physically addicted to alcohol. He's saying long term, yeah, methamphetamine users. Now, where he said like 30 years, you <laughs> know, like some of these old crankster, maybe bikers, yeah, and I'm not yeah. trying to like, you know, like categorize anything, but he's saying that. Sometimes they can't reverse the brain and they have to give them um, m- you know, the same medication that they would treat, like a schizophrenic or something, mm-hmm. and that helps. But what he did say, the good news is is that you know, people like you and I, and I, even I used for 20 years, you know, yeah. and, and that you can re-stimulate these you know, dopamine, endorphins, by doing things like exercise you know? And he even used to have people put a rubber band on their wrist when they were having a craving, snap that. Yeah. Because why? You know, it's the whole thing. Pain and pleasure is really close, right? Yes. And so, and that's why, you know, I mean, the whole nother part about about the asphyxia... Oh, yes. Uh, What's that called?
1: uh, Autoerotic asphyxiation. I mean,
0: yeah. And so but it is or people go to dominatrix and you know like oh yeah oh, that that's another podcast that's, but yeah
1: again that's if you
0: think about pain pleasure yes that's why he would do the snapping the risk well yeah you and i
1: think especially uh ivy junkies like you and me and right. like i'm sure many other people out there like yeah that pain pleasure kind of complex is very familiar yeah Totally. Uh, And the ritual
0: of getting, you know, loaded or sticking needles in our arms, you know, and cutters. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, these are all fun little podcasts that we could do. So going back to his brain chemistry theory, it makes so much sense in relationship to the big book. And so, you know, I'm sitting in this class as a, you know, recovering member of a 12-step program thinking, fuck, that makes, you know, complete sense. Yeah. The restless, irritable, and discontent. So... He said other things that, you know, hope can re-stimulate brain chemistry. You know, doing physical exercise. That's why he would tell people, look, I'm not saying that right when you get sober or clean, you're going to go run a marathon, (laughs) but go for a walk, man. Yes. You know, get your heart rate up, and all this stuff helps. And so it was just really interesting to hear, you know, his whole deal about that. And, it, and, again, it, it, like, clicked.
1: Yeah, where you? Yeah, where you, it's like the pieces of the puzzle that kind of come together. And and I think, too, because it, it can seem, I think, at times when you're new that, you know, AA and the allergy in quotation right. marks, It's it's all this allegory, all this metaphor. And right. it seems kind of like, oh, is there any real basis for this? And, I mean, there's all this fake news out there about, yeah. you know, what's... You just—it's so hard to know what is true and what is not sometimes. And I think coming into uh, a twelve-step program because there is still stigma about being an alcoholic or an addict. It's hard sometimes to get real information, but it's this is real information. Yeah,
0: no, it's science. Yeah, you know, and some people want to deny science, and that's okay. Give me a hug and and yeah, I
1: I guess we'll agree to disagree. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny too is that. You know, I was just thinking about that when you said about people coming into meetings, because they d- this never was discussed. No. You'll never hear this in, in AA or in NA or whatever, is that they're not going to talk about brain chemistry. They'll talk about the restless, irritable, and discontent, mm-hmm. but this is where the science catches up with it. So, and I w- we were talking about this before the podcast, that there there was a guy that, dude, this is guy's a historian, an AA historian, right? Yeah, And he's reading my book, he's up to step two, and he goes, God, man, you know, this." he said this is an essential book for people in recovery because, he goes, just reading up to step two is that you talk about brain chemistry. Yeah. And the science behind it, the psychology behind it, you know, all of that stuff. And I think it's important. Now, again, is that going to keep you sober, sober knowing all this stuff?
1: maybe not not. you still have
0: to do the fucking work yeah it's you know yeah it's great information and it's good to know but ultimately if you don't put the other work in
1: yes if there's no action there is no result but
0: for me it was like oh click 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 i love knowing this this is what's going on in my brain yes you know and it's not just like oh i'm some you know I have some weird like allergy and I don't really yeah. even get that you know
1: I mean, yeah you know, I I agree an, right uh, I'm like an information hound <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. like I like I like having all the information and actually this might help us segue into like the spirituality yeah. part of this uh this chapter this episode um that I remember I was watching uh something on Nova because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like a documentary right. like I just love them like I'm obsessed. And they were talking about how they were trying to find evidence in the human brain of, like, the existence of God, right? right? And obviously, they can't concretely confirm or deny the existence of God. No one can. No one can. But what they did find is that when they did MRIs um, of a bunch of, like, some random, you know, test group of people where they put them in an MRI machine that they, um, they had, you know, there's a control group, but then the the actual test group, they had them go in there and pray or to think about God or, right. uh, you know, spiritual, their conception of whatever that is. And it's a very specific part of the brain that would light up. Wow. And that one of the things that can, because um, like a later part of the experiment, instead of just having them think about it, they showed them imagery. Mm. Um, and they found that like one of the, one of the easiest ways to access that part of our brain that is lit up when we think about spirituality, um, our connectedness to the universe, is in nature. Oh, wow. And that, like, looking out, like, if you look at a beautiful sunset or, you
0: know, out,
1: out over the ocean or...
0: Starlit night or yes, something, right? Yes,
1: wherever it is that you get... I mean, I feel... I, it's one of those... I don't know how to put it into words. You get that feeling of awe at, yeah. like how small you are in comparison to that vast universe. Like, I, I feel it very specifically looking right. at the night sky. Um, and uh, But that, that feeling is what these people were describing when that area of their brain was lit up. Yeah. And so I think that's a really cool way, and it really has helped me to kind of conceptualize um, a power greater than myself that is outside of, like, a dogmatic religious...
0: Yeah, and, and again, I mean, that does kind of segue into the next uh, part of the book. And, and I touch on that because that's the 12-step um, solution. Yeah. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So Carl Jung is the first guy, in the, and it's in uh, the chapter, There is a Solution, that he talks about that. And back in that period of time in the 30s, there were three major psychiatrists (laughs) in Europe. Yes. There was Carl Jung, there was Sigmund Freud, and Adler. I'm sorry, I I forget his first name. But they were the ones. Now, why this particular guy, Roland Hazard, went to Carl Jung. So again, now let's go back. Mm -hmm. Dr. Silkworth knew what the problem was the allergy the phenomenon of craving right yeah but didn't really know what the solution is when he started having these guys come in they were like if we help these guys this is what and this is where I talk about synergy yes you know you and I are a power greater than ourselves you know and and Um, And it's connected to what you were talking about Those, you know, starlit night, you know, the sunset, the whole universe in in one is that we're just one piece of that, but we're connected to everything. Yes. So when the guy Roland Hazard went over to see Carl Jung and Carl Jung did all these therapy (laughs) on him and he was like, you know, oh my God, you know, like spent all this money during the depression. <laughs> I so can't had, even imagine right. to see
1: Carl Jung. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, how did he get to Europe? I mean, there, there wasn't, air travel wasn't a big thing. I don't know if he took a steamer and took Yeah, right, just took to a up, boat for a few right? weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. So he gets over there and, and is hanging out with Carl Jung. And he's like, good, you're done. Go have at it, you know? And he comes out, he's like, fuck, everything I know. I know all the triggers, anything. So he's drunk within a few weeks. Yeah. So he goes back to Carl Jung. And I love what Carl Jung's um, treatment plan was. He goes, in my mind, you're, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, you can never recover. Here's my treatment plan. Get a bodyguard or <laughs> yeah. lock yourself in a fucking closet. I'm like, here's one of the greatest psychological minds of our time, yeah. right?
1: And has no Tell, idea. And this
0: is your fucking treatment plan? At least give me some volume or yeah, something. Yeah, right. You right?
1: could at least give me like a script pad. <laughs> exactly. Come on
0: now. So that, uh, that blew my mind, is that story. But then, you know, and it goes on where Roland says, oh, fuck, I thought my life was over, and, you know, the gates of hell clanged before me, or whatever how yeah. the hell they described it. And he said, is there no exception to what you're saying? he goes, oh, and then Carl Jung says, oh, yeah, there is an exception. <laughs> Since the beginning of time, this has been this phenomenon. Yeah. That... Did he use the word phenomenon? I, or, Yeah, I think so. It's that he said people have had these what they call religious experiences. Vital spiritual experiences. Vital spiritual experience. Yeah. And he says it's a change. He goes, once were the driving forces, ideas, attitudes, and emotions, that mm-hmm. once were the driving force in your life, are set aside and a whole new concept is put into place. Yes. So he's not saying... In, in, in essence that a spiritual awakening is like, you know, oh, you you have a Messiah, yeah, or, you've been touched you know, by you God meditated or, under the Bodhi tree, or, yeah. you know, any of this stuff, or, you know, you've accepted Shiva, Brahma, Krishna, it's not. He's saying ideas, emotions, and attitudes, well, once were the driving uh, force in your life, are set aside, and a whole new concept. He does, he's not talking about the 12 steps, because there were no 12 steps at that oh, point. Oh, yeah, no. So, A spiritual if you if you talk about spirituality and and this is just in the concept of the twelve steps. Yes. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the first eleven steps, is what he's saying is that if you do this work, you know, in essence, or what the 12 steps are saying, because they're based is like the solution to your problem is a spiritual awakening. It's not, again, going accepting anything as your savior. It's about, and this is where I really like drive this home, is you have to do the work. And by doing the work, you get plugged into what you were talking about, this greater love, compassion that's in the universe, the starlit night, the sunset, all this good stuff by yeah. doing the work. And it's not just having a set of moral principles, that is too. That's yeah, that, that's, definitely that's part, part of what of it. it is. But the spiritual experience, the spiritual acceptance, and the spiritual um, awakening are a change in perception. Yes. Of how we used to do. Ideas, attitudes, uh, emotions that once were the driving force. Now we're looking at, you know, Chuck C. would say, a new pair of glasses. I'm looking out at the world in a different way. And we know what, you know, the... Whoever coined this is that they said, when I change the way I look at something, the thing that I look at has changed. Yeah. Uh, You know, if I look at it in an optimistic way, if I look at it in a pessimistic way, that's what I'm going. And then that goes into the whole, you know, law of attractions and all of that. So, you know, talking about that part of the book, I think what page it's on, 48 is that, you know, to me, it's about doing the work to get that change of perception. And that's where they talk about an experience opposed to an awakening, you know, over the educational variety. And they talk about that in the spiritual appendix in the big book. Yes. So, you know, that's my theory. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, too, is that It's not about a God, for instance. It's about doing the work, you know, right? We could have called the book Just Do the Fucking Work. Yeah, just
1: do the work. And
0: have this change and and be able to look at yourself and look at patterns of behavior. You're not drinking anymore. That's not the problem. Yeah. You're not using heroin anymore. That's not the problem. The problem is you and how you react and how your relationship. And we talked about the brain chemistry. It's so click, click, click. You're like, fuck, I get this now.
1: It, it does feel like that. Especially, and, it, and it's yeah.
0: exciting, right?
1: I think so. I mean, I, and it makes me feel more like, okay, this is, I'm doing the right thing, the next indicated right, right thing. When right. I see how the way that AA, I mean, because I do work a 12-step program, that because of the way that I structure my life around that, you know, blueprint for living, right. that there is actual science that backs up that, like, what I'm doing... Right. Is beneficial and it will help me heal myself emotionally, physically, and in every other way spiritually. spiritually yeah. yeah, I mean, I look. I mean, even something like we were just—it just when you were talking um, reminded me. You know, of the promises. Yeah. You know, we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle, baffle us. Right. I have that experience like every day right. where like things happen. I get stressed out because I'm a stress case, and where I probably would have in the past had a total meltdown yeah. that I, this sounds so corny, but like, you know, having that fear replaced by faith Yeah. that I just like, you know, like I'm having a hell of a time dealing with unemployment right now mm-hmm. during this pandemic. Oh, right. And I see people that I, at least some of these women I live with at my sober living who are just totally in a downward spiral over it. Right. Like they just cannot handle it. They're constantly freaking out. And I could easily be in that place, you know? I mean, my, my job closed as a result of the pandemic back in right. June. But uh, I just had, I just know it's going to be okay. Yeah. It doesn't mean I get to sit on my ass and, like, oh, it's going to be fine.
0: And but it's no. It's a change in the way. It's and I'm a, doing it's the work. Perspect- mm-hmm. and you do, by doing the work, it's a change in perspective. You know? Yeah. And how you see... I mean, but it's, it's exciting. It's like you said, it's, that's why, you know, you can hear the excitement in my voice is that when you combine the science with, uh, you know, the 12 step of how, how you're doing the process of this work, that there's a power greater than yourself in that. And, and, and then, and then getting the results from it, like the promises, you know, intuitively knowing how to handle situations used to baffle us, it's, you know i mean it's exciting to me because it's happened in my life and again everything's not you know rainbows and unicorns <laughs> all the time but it's fucking life and life happens yeah. and when we don't go back to shooting heroin because of this you yeah. know <laughs> but the other thing is that you know you say spirituality people think of like like god yes. or you know or you know buddha or whatever you know but it's not that it's it's part science it's part science yeah. and faith and being connected to this whole other deal totally (laughs) so we're getting to the end of this and the power of the trinity yes um so in any of these 12-step programs they have the trinity you know and the trinity is widely used in a lot of spiritual programs you know father son holy ghost shiva brahma krishna you know a Buddha Dharma Sangha, uh, in AA or in Twelve Steps, they talk about recovery, unity, and service. You know, and it's the triangle. That's the triangle It's, it's the, on tr- the back it, of the coins. Yeah, it's and it's the Trinity. Yeah. Right? So the reason they're saying that is that that connects the circle. You mm-hmm. know, that's the power greater than yourself. <coughs> oh, sorry, I got a bug um, in my throat. Hmm. The the recovery part is the base, if you'll see that the base of the triangle, yeah, and that's in reference to the twelve steps and doing the work yeah. to have that spiritual awakening, foundation, be, that if change you will. of your perception, you know, the change of the way you look at it, the new pair of glasses, right? The unity would be the meetings and the fellowship, fellowship and you know, and how we interact with other people, and then the service is what we give back to. Yeah,
1: carrying the message.
0: Carrying Mm -hmm. the message, or being the coffee person at a a meeting, or giving someone a ride. Whatever the service is, yeah, it doesn't have to be the service of sponsoring fifty people, or you know, there's so many ways to be a service, you know, and and that and that is just you know, the magic of the 12-step program is being able to give back what's been so freely given to us. And by doing that, we keep this flow of, you know, the uh, the law of giving.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know? And I think that that right there is a really good example of the synergy that you talk about in the book. As like, you know, when I mean, I know for myself that, you know, we all have bad days. We all have, you know, that's life, like you were saying. Right. but. And, Because I live in a sober living, I have the opportunity to be around a bunch of addicts and alcoholics all the time for better or worse. But that also means that I have the opportunity basically all day long to be of service to someone. And I know that, and it says it in the big book, um, that when all else fails, that uh, work with another alcoholic saves the day. And it's true. I mean, our own petty problems... They seem so small, you know, when you're able to give of yourself to somebody else, even if it's just lending them an ear, you know, so they can talk. But I I, as I think we talked about in the in our first podcast episode, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had that roommate who described her uh, understanding of uh, a power greater than herself as just the space between. To addicts or alcoholics while they're working together,
0: and that's the synergy.
1: And that's the synergy right, right there. Um, and I think that the 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 service, the unity. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, it. But I find the service really is the linchpin. It is because we are we're selfish and self-centered by nature, yeah. right?
0: Um, and some people don't get that. You know, after I know a lot of people, and and it's and again, it's not a judgment call. But some people have been around for. Ten, twenty, 20, you know, like, yeah. Hey man, I just, you know, I hear the same shit at meetings and I'm like, but it's not about you. It's yeah. about what you can give back, you know? And I get it. I mean, if you're, if you have a life and you know, you have the wonderful wife and, or husband and, you know, two dogs and a cat and yeah. two kids and, and that, and your life's going well, I mean, but for me, it's about keeping the law of giving and, and giving and receiving
1: absolutely I mean I remember hearing at some point that and I don't know I'm sure there are different numbers on this one but I remember hearing that after your 30 once you get your 30 days you're there to represent for the newcomer
0: yeah, yeah. and working through the steps too yes so let's wrap this up I we mean should. this was a long one that was about an hour oh, oh shoot yeah 55 but that's good I mean it was it was a good conversation so we'll see you on the next episode thank you I'd like to thank all the people that are involved in making this happen. Gerald Jones for producing and engineering this podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. Follow him on Instagram at Sonia HTML. His music is amazing. Maya Grace for hair and makeup. I know what you're saying. This is a podcast. Why do you have hair and makeup? We just want to look awesome for each other. See you next time.